0: I was uh, earlier this year. I was um, I became a citizen of the United States, um, and it was a long time coming, but it was great. But even though I'm a citizen of this country, I'm still Welsh, 100% Welsh. Both my parents are Welsh. I was born in the UK, and as a Welshman, I have a deep melancholy in my soul. This past week, I had a birthday. I turned 47 years old, and I'm not saying that because I'm trying to get gifts or belated birthday congratulations. I say that because on my birthday, I become even more melancholy as I think about the past 47 years of my life. And I start to think about all the wasted time, all the wasted money, all the wasted decisions I made over the last 47 years. Maybe you don't need to be welsh to be melancholy. Maybe you also wonder of these things. You think back on your life and you think why did that happen? Why did I make that decision? We need the book of Ruth because it reminds us that God is in the business of redeeming messy lives. He's in the business of redeeming bad decisions. He is in the business of redeeming broken and ruined people. So as we come to this passage now, we're going to see who the true Redeemer is and what he does for us. So if you will, turn with your Bible or you can turn in your bulletin, it's also there. I'm going to read to us from Ruth 4. Hear the word of the Lord. It is life for us. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, aside friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting to Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all the belonging, all that belonging to, belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place, You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, something like that, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a long passage. There's a lot going on in here, but these are words of life for us. But we need your Holy Spirit to take these words and apply them to our hearts and to our minds and to change us. Because if we do it ourselves, we're going to get distracted and we're going to get discouraged and we're basically just going to tune out. So, Holy Spirit, be in our midst now. We're gonna see three words alive to us, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. We're gonna see three things in this passage about a true Redeemer. You're gonna see that a true Redeemer is moved by love. You're gonna see that a true Redeemer is not ashamed of the outcast. And lastly, you're gonna see a true Redeemer secures a hope for the hopeless. A true Redeemer is moved by love, is not ashamed of the outcast, and secures a hope for the hopeless. Love, unashamed, hope. Let's look at the first one. The true redeemer is moved by love. If you remember from last week, Boaz has promised Ruth that he will find a redeemer for her and for Naomi. He knew a guy, and he said, if that guy is not interested, then I will redeem you. He immediately posts up at the city gate. In ancient Jewish tradition, these city gates were where all the elders would kind of hang out and the wise men of the city would be. It would be like the local diner, if you will, where all of the wise guys would be. And this was where they would make decisions. This is almost like a court of law. Wherever things were made, uh, decisions were made at the city gates, it was firm, it was set, it was law. Boaz goes to the city gate. What does it say? Lo and behold, who shows up? I love this word in the Bible, behold. Because I think whenever we see that word, behold, it's a little tongue in cheek by the author. It's almost like a surprise. Like, you'll never believe what happened. But we have learned one thing, if we've learned anything from the book of Ruth. Is there are no surprises in God's plan. God is always at work. And so, even in this posting up by Boaz and then this, behold, who shows up, we see that God is always at work. There is nothing, nothing is coincidence in God's plan. So, Boaz approaches this Redeemer and he approaches him with a deal. Before we get to the deal, I want to talk about what a redeemer is. What a kinsman redeemer, that's another word for a redeemer, maybe some of you have heard this before, what a kinsman redeemer is. A kinsman redeemer was a relative who had the right to help out another relative if they were in trouble, financial trouble, by buying their land from them. A kinsman redeemer was a man who had the right to buy their relative's land for the following reasons to keep that land in the family, to enlarge his land holdings, and then to help out that family member who was in trouble. This oftentimes, if not always, happened whenever a woman... Uh, Whenever the husband of a woman died, and now this woman was, was stuck with this land, but she couldn't farm it herself, and so she would look for the nearest relative who could buy this. Now, when that relative bought this land, they would also provide for this widow. So, Boaz approaches this redeemer. Remember, in the book of Ruth, I've been saying this from the beginning, in the book of Ruth, Names are important. We always got to pay attention to the names. Very early on, there was a bunch of names, right? Elimelech, that was Naomi's husband who died. Malon and Chilion, they were Naomi's sons who died. I'm sorry, did I say Elimelech was a son or a husband? Anyway, it was a husband who died. And then Orpah, Orpah and Ruth, they were the daughter-in-laws to Naomi. Everyone has a name in this book. Names matter. This guy doesn't have a name. This redeemer does not have a name. And that's important, and we'll see why. Boaz comes to this redeemer with a seemingly good deal, doesn't he? You know, Boaz is clever. If there's one thing that we've learned about Boaz in this uh, book, he is a very clever and calculating guy. And he couches this deal in the positive. He says, hey, listen, we have a relative, you and I. Her name's Naomi, and she's got to get rid of her land. She's desperate. She needs to unload this land in order to keep it in the family, you know, the name that was given to the Redeemer in this, uh, Boaz calls him a friend. He says, turn aside, friend, come sit here. That word friend in, uh, in Hebrew is the term, and it's a funny term, and I'm sure I'm not going to pronounce it right, so I'll pronounce it as American as I possibly can, Polony almoni. That's the Hebrew for friend, poloni almoni. Directly translated, Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so is presented with this deal, and Mr. So-and-so jumps at the opportunity. Land? That's a good deal. Land's scarce these days. There's a potential profit here. He weighs it all out very quickly. The logical answer, I'm in. I will redeem it. When I lived in Florida, you know, I've only, I've only been ordained for about 10 years. Uh, my other life, I was a real estate guy, and I worked for a land development company, and I sold the perverse, uh job. I sold swampland in Florida. That was my niche uh, job that I had. And it's sad to say this, but the best land deals that you come across is when people are Desperate when they need money, and they will sell at rock-bottom prices. When people are desperate and need money, that's when other people look for opportunity. And much like this opportunistic redeemer, I also was looking for those deals. And he saw this deal as an opportunity. It was logical. I'm the redeemer. This woman needs uh, to be redeemed. I will buy the land. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, I'll redeem it. When he says this, he also means, I will take care of Naomi. I'll take a part of the proceeds from the land, and I'll help this woman out. And on the surface, this redeemer seems like a good, logical, nice guy. Then Boaz turns this logical opportunity into something else, doesn't he? He makes the statement that this property comes with a little bit of baggage, A Moabite. When I sold swampland in Florida, I certainly sold... This is my joke for this sermon. I certainly sold property with mosquito bites, but never Moabites. (laughs) At this... So, at this news... Sorry, that's that's really uncouth, but I had to say it. At this news that this property came with some baggage with this Moabite, Mr. So-and-so starts to backpedal off of his deal. He starts to stumble over his words, right? We see it twice. I cannot redeem it. He goes, I cannot redeem it. I cannot redeem it. He says it twice. He's backpedaling out of this deal. His rationale? He says, this would impact my inheritance. In other words, taking Ruth as his wife would then potentially give her children, which would mean now her children had a claim on his inheritance. He was weighing it all out. This does not seem good. Now, some might say, well, maybe he's still being virtuous. Maybe he's still, you know, trying to protect his family. But remember, he has no name. When people have no names in the Bible, they are usually not acting out of virtuous motivation. This redeemer was not interested in helping the poor if it was not profitable to him. His redemption was motivated by logic. What about us? Let's stop here. Let's kind of reflect a little bit. What about you? Will you only enter into some sort of ministry opportunity Will you only enter into helping out with outreaching events or or talking with your neighbor or caring for the less fortunate in our community if it's logical for you, if it makes sense to you, if there's an ROI, return on investment, for you? Does logic motivate your sacrifice? For Boaz... Logic does not motivate his redemption and his sacrifice. He is motivated by love. A true redeemer is motivated by love. Boaz loved Ruth, and by extension, he loves Naomi. Therefore, he is not looking to his own interest. He's looking to their interest. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians is a letter written in the New Testament, And it says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count yourselves more significant. Do not count yourself more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Boaz's redemption of Ruth and Naomi is because he is humble. How do we know this? How do we know that he's motivated by love and out of humility? Because of Boaz's mom. Who is Boaz's mom? Boaz's mom, her name is Rahab. Names matter. Rahab was the very first person that helped the Israelites come into the promised land. She lived in a city called Jericho, and as some spies from the Israelites went and checked out Jericho to find out who their enemy was, they were helped by Rahab. Rahab was an outsider. Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab helped God's people, and therefore God saved Rahab. God saved Rahab and his grace saved Rahab and she became a part of the Israelite tribe. Out of her broken, messy, unlikely story, she is not just brought into the tribe, she is married by an Israelite and she is given a child named Boaz. Boaz grew up in a home where he knew very, very, very clearly, and he, I am sure, often heard his mother tell the story of grace, of redemption, and of God looking to the outsider and bringing them in. Boaz is moved by love because he had been loved by the Redeemer, Yahweh. He had experienced the love of God, the redeemer of his people, the one who was faithful and kind to his people, and the one who promised to send the true redeemer one day. And although Boaz didn't know anything about Jesus Christ, who actually was, he was actually ended up being his great, 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 great -great grandfather. He had experienced the love of God as redeemer. Boaz shows us that a redeemer is moved by love, not logic. And we see that in Christ, the true redeemer, because he is moved by love towards you, not by logic towards you. Romans 5 says this, when you were weak and when you were ungodly, that is when the love of Christ comes to you. That is when he saw you. That is when he died for you. Love is what motivated Christ to be your redeemer because he is not ashamed of the outcast. That's my second point. My first was the true redeemer is moved by love. The second is the true redeemer isn't ashamed of the outcast. You know, Boaz's past, and maybe this is something you can just grab onto, Boaz's past, your past, shapes his present. His mother was an outcast. He was a half-breed. He knew what it meant to be an outcast. His mother was a Gentile, his father was a Jew. He knows that Ruth is an outcast. He knows that if if it was just a matter of redeeming Naomi, then that other Redeemer would have jumped in, jumped at the opportunity. So that is why he brings up Ruth in this passage. The Moabite outcast has no hope of being redeemed. No one wants to touch this girl with a 10-foot pole except for Boaz because he is not ashamed of the outcast. And then he makes a promise to this outcast. Do you remember what he said? He said, if that redeemer doesn't redeem you, I will redeem you. Boaz is not ashamed of the outcast, and in fact, he makes this audacious promise to her. If you have your Bibles or if you have a phone that has a Bible on it, turn to Psalm 15 with me. This is an important psalm for us. Who can enter. In Psalm 15, it talks about who can enter God's presence. It says this: "O oh Lord, who? shall sojourn in your tent, which means who can enter into your tent? Who shall dwell on the holy hill? Who can dwell before the presence of God? And then the psalmist says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right, who speaks truth in his heart, Who does not slander with his tongue, who does no no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Listen to this. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he... Who does these things shall never be moved. Boaz really had nothing to gain from marrying Ruth. But he is listening to the tune of grace. He is moved by love. He is not ashamed of the outcast. Therefore, he makes a vow, even to his own hurt, to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Boaz challenges us Right? He challenges us in our concern and loyalty to those who are outcast in our society. Here's what I hear. I hear the right always critiquing the left. And how the right critiques the left is this. The left, politically speaking or ideologically speaking, are always virtue signaling. Right? They talk about helping the poor. They talk about the oppressed. They talk about the abused. But they aren't actually interested in helping them. But, you know, the same criticism can be said about the politically right or the ideologically right. They talk about limited government and freer markets and constitutional rights, but it's many times a smokescreen for greed and comfort and not my problem. Boaz challenges us to think differently, to think like Christ. Boaz challenges us, though. Do we see where we came from? Do we see that we were the outsider? Do we see that we were not saved by our merit, but by mercy? Do we take vows to God? We just watched the family take vows just now to us and to God. You as members of this church, you have taken vows to God as you have uh, done the same exact thing, the same five vows. What does it mean? to keep those vows vows to your own hurt? What does it mean for you in marriages to take vows to your own hurt? What does it mean when life gets hard and you think maybe that vow doesn't matter anymore? What about areas in your life that you need to die to yourself, but you just love yourself too much? Friends, we have all taken vows that we will not keep to our own hurt. And therefore, I have good news for you. There is one who took a vow to his own hurt and he carried through with it. And his name is Jesus. Because he is the redeemer that is better than Boaz. A redeemer who doesn't just show you how to live, but he does it for you. Jesus is not ashamed of the outcast. I love this about Jesus, that his heart is towards you in your sin, not when you're trying to get better. He is not ashamed of you. He comes to you. Jesus is not ashamed of the outcast because he was an outcast. He knew what it was like to not fit in, not to be accepted, not to be wanted, to be shunned, to be rejected, and to be denied. By who? By us. And yet he made a promise. He said, I'm going to save them. I'm going to go the distance for them. And even though it's going to hurt like hell to do that, I'm going to keep that promise. The true redeemer is not ashamed of the outcast because he knows rejection and he is the one who took the ultimate vow, the vow to go to that cross and to die for you and to redeem you and to buy you back by his blood. Friends, how can we not be ashamed of the outcast like Boaz was? How can we not be ashamed of the outcast like Jesus is? How can we keep our vows? By remembering what Jesus has done for us. How he forgave you because he is not ashamed of you. Because of his unashamed love Boaz had for Ruth and for Naomi, as the Redeemer, he also secures a hope for the hopeless. This is my last point. The true Redeemer secures a hope for the hopeless. This statement to the elders is not one of begrudging obligation. He's not like, well, I'll just take her. I mean, nobody else is going to redeem her. I'll take her. He genuinely loves Ruth. And he genuinely loves Naomi. And he is not ashamed of them. He says, I'm going to take this woman, Ruth, and I'm going to make her my wife. So the name of her dead husband will have an inheritance. He goes on and he says that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. He's making a statement that he's not just going to establish an inheritance, he's going to establish a legacy. I want you to think about legacy for a moment. I want you to think about your parents. Okay. What are your parents' names? Just rattle, don't shout them out. Just rattle them off in your head. Okay, what are your parents' names? What are your parents' favorite food? What do your parents do for hobbies? Where did your parents live? Where were they born? What do your parents like to watch on TV? All right, now I want you to think about your grandparents. What are your grandparents' names? What are their favorite foods? Where were they born? What did they like to watch on TV? Maybe some of those information's a little fuzzy for you. Now I want you to think about your great-grandparents. What are their names? Where were they born? What did they like to eat? What did they watch on TV? Nothing, because there was no TVs back then. Do you see it gets fuzzier and fuzzier? Some of you are smiling because you've done your genealogical, whatever it is, you know, homework, and you know all your family tree and everything. But most of us in here, three generations, you are forgotten and obscure. Three generations, no one will remember Or very few will remember what you have done. But a true Redeemer, a true Redeemer is looking to give the hopeless a legacy, a future that will be remembered. Christians, that is the greatest heritage you can leave behind a legacy that points to God's grace and faithfulness in your life. What are you striving to leave behind? Good memories? good vacation time, an inheritance of land and money. Those things are important. Those things are good. But remember, the legacy that lives in you is a legacy of the Redeemer. Somebody told you about Jesus. They spent time with you. They loved you. They showed you grace. And that person was also poured into by somebody else. And that person was also poured into by somebody else. The legacy that we leave, the most important legacy we can leave, is one where Jesus is talked about, where God's faithfulness is seen. This blessing that is pronounced over Boaz and Ruth, this, this blessing, it ripple three women day. I want to end this sermon very quickly looking at three women in the legacy That we see in this passage. A hope for the hopeless. The first two women are Rachel and Leah. Remember, names matter. Who are these two ladies? You can read about Rachel and Leah in Genesis 29. Basically, these women are the wives of a man named Jacob. Jacob is the father of 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes essentially make up Israel. And these women were incredibly messy. Leah was very well, she had a nice personality. She wasn't very beautiful. In fact, she was so not beautiful that her father had to trick Jacob into marrying her. Seven years later, he gets to marry Leah. Leah is beautiful, but she can't have any children. Leah becomes very, very bitter towards her husband and towards Rachel, or towards uh I'm sorry, I think I got that backwards. Leah is the ugly one. Rachel is the pretty one. Leah can have children. Rachel cannot have children. Rachel becomes very bitter towards Leah and towards her husband, Jacob. The family becomes wildly dysfunctional. Why on earth would they say, oh, we really hope your marriage is going to be like Rachel and Leah's marriage? Because even in that messiness, these people see God working out his plan. Out of Rachel and Leah, these 12 tribes produce a rich lineage. The King David and King Solomon and then eventually King Jesus comes from these 12. Out of these two women's mess, God brings hope. To drive home the point of the beautiful, messy redeemer There's a comparison with Tamar and Judah. You can read about this story in Genesis 38. Tamar is like Ruth in a lot of ways. Tamar is an outcast. She's not an Israelite, but she marries an Israelite, but that guy dies. And so she's a widow and she has no children. She also dresses up in order to get a future, to get a husband. And that's where the similarities end. You see Tamar dressed up like a prostitute. And she seduces and tricks her father-in-law, Judah. Judah is nothing like Boaz. Judah's actually looking for a prostitute. Tamar gets pregnant by her father-in-law. And I'm pretty sure none of you are thinking, oh, this is how this sermon's gonna end. This father-in-law then goes home. He doesn't know who he has slept with. He doesn't know that Tamar is his daughter-in-law and and that she was tricked him into sleeping with him. And so when when he finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant, he is furious and he goes, burn her. But before Tamar shows up, she sends a staff and a signet ring. And she says, the guy who got me pregnant is the guy who owns this staff and this signet ring. And guess who they belong to? Judah. Tamar ends up having twins because of Judah. Perez and Zerah. We're going to learn a little bit more about them next week. But Perez ends up becoming in the royal line of Joseph and of David and of Jesus. Why would the women, why would this, or I'm sorry, why would these women be mentioned? Why would this be the comparison? Because the people of God see the hand of God at work in the messiness of our lives. That is what the Redeemer does. He redeems messy people because he is moved by love, he is unashamed of the outcast, and he gives you a hope and an inheritance. The passage I've been really thinking about this week keeps coming up over and over again is Hebrews 12, 2. And it says this. Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who are you looking to to redeem you? Do you have a mess in your life? Are you messy? Are you thinking, how is this all going to work out? Maybe you believe in Jesus, but you think maybe this is one time too many. My friend, Jesus Christ is the true redeemer. He is the one moved by love towards you, not by logic of whether it's worth saving you. For you are the joy that was set before him. He is the one who's unashamed of you, who goes into the pit to get you, who becomes a human for you, who despises the shame of the cross for you. And he is the one seated on the throne for you and says, you are in me and I am in you, which means now you have a hope and a future and a legacy. You are redeemed. My friends, that's why we go to this table. This table is set by the redeemer for the redeemed. And we come here and we remember that our Redeemer is moved by love towards you. He is not ashamed of you. And he has given you a future and a hope. So let's go there now. Let's pray. We are overwhelmed that you would redeem us, that you would see us like Boaz seeing Ruth, an outcast with nothing to offer and yet is moved towards her out of love, and not, not ashamed of her, but gives her a hope and a future. Lord, we pray that as we come to the table now, you will remind us of our redemption in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.